0: Yes, it's the one. Okay. All right. Well, if you're visiting today, I want to apologize because this is—I'm <laughs> not quite as good as Jim, but uh, I do want to thank him for the opportunity to do this. Um, and as we just read in Luke, I want to uh, try to give us some context of this entire setting that's going on right now. There's a lot to unpack, so let's try and let's try and gather what what the setting is and what's going on. In chapter 11, at verse uh, 37. The Pharisee had welcomed Jesus into his home for a public dinner. And apparently the Pharisee had let it be known that he was somewhat shocked and disappointed that Jesus had not gone through the man-made Pharisee's rites and ritual of hand-washing before the meal, which the Pharisees thought every truly and godly and holy person would do, um, even though it's not commanded in God's Word. And the Pharisee had judged Jesus for not washing before the meal. So Jesus, in response to the Pharisee's judgment, lit him up in conversation. If we had been sitting at this meal, we probably would have been looking down at our plates, probably excusing ourselves to the restroom, or doing anything we could not to get into this conversation. And that conversation between Jesus and the Pharisee begins an extended discussion regarding the problem of the religion of the Pharisees. After that conversation, Jesus takes takes his disciples aside and begins to express woes and curses upon the Pharisees, and then upon the scribes and the lawyers. Not attorneys or those who practice law, but the scribes and lawyers who were experts in the Torah, the law of the Hebrews, who were responsible for interpreting and explaining it to the people. And so Jesus pronounces a series of woes upon the scribes and the lawyers, and this is going to continue into chapter 12. Jesus now has left the setting of the dinner, and he's about to engage in public ministry. And there are thousands of people now gathered around, still zeroing in on the conversation he had about the Pharisees. And it has to do with the, with the essence of the problem of Phariseeism, which he identifies here as the leaven of hypocrisy, as the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. This passage that we just read is considered to be some of the hard sayings of Jesus. And I want to try and lay out for you some of the main points Jesus is trying to get across by summarizing hypocrisy, fear, and confession. And I want to explain three points of hypocrisy first. What it does, how it does, and why it does. Look with me back at verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now it's interesting to note that there are thousands of people now gathered around to see Jesus, all of which may be there for different reasons, some good, some bad. And amongst the chaos of people trampling on one another, Jesus addresses His disciples first, and then subsequently the crowd that followed. And the first point He makes is a warning, saying, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, or the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now mind you, this is not the first time Jesus uses the metaphor of leaven in His teachings. He is used it in a negative sense, describing the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew chapter 16 as the leaven of hypocrisy. He's also used leaven of Herod in Mark chapter 8 and verse 15 as the leaven of power. But he's also used it in a good sense in Matthew 13 and in Luke chapter 13 regarding the growth and the expansion of the kingdom of God. Paul also uses it in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6 as the leaven of sin corrupting the church. So leaven has been used throughout, script, throughout the scripture to describe permeating power or influence. And here the the images of the destructive power of hypocrisy. It's important to note that leaven may exist without being immediately detected. Leaven, when mixed with flour, is not known until it produces its effects. So what hypocrisy does, Jesus is speaking of, is, is when, <laughs> when applied to a substance, has the ability to be pervasive and to fill up. Just a little thing, when it's applied, will spread, fill up. A little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. It's a slow and insidious and constant process. And what he's saying, just a little bit of leaven, when it enters into your life, will occupy your life. Just a little bit of Phariseeism, of pretending, allowed into your life, will be uncontainable, and it will spread like a cancer or an infection, and it will destroy your character. So Jesus is saying, be careful of living a deceitful life and hiding behind a religious mask. Now in verses 2 and 3, he gives us the reason for this warning. "...nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. A day is coming when the mask of hypocrisy will slip and you will be exposed. There are consequences to living a fake life. Any attempt to hide our true selves from the world and maintain a righteousness that is not authentic will sooner or later be revealed." There will be full disclosure on Judgment Day. All motivation, all impure thoughts, all evil and good deeds based on our motives will be revealed. We all have something in our lives that we are ashamed of, and we like to pretend that those things are not part of our character. But in the end, God will judge men's secrets and motives through the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4-5 says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. He knows our motives. The real issue here is not, did he preach well, but rather, why did he preach? The real issue here is not, was she helpful to her neighbor? The real issue is, why was she helpful to her neighbor? Or maintaining friendship and love. On the outside, while whispering unkindness to one, to one another behind closed doors. Don't be infected by the leaven of the Pharisees, because their kind of religion infects everything that it touches. Now that we see what hypocrisy does by infection, let us look into how hypocrisy infects. And I will submit to you that infection—that the infection of hypocrisy spreads by self-justification. And I will, And I will admit, too, that this is probably the most convicting part that hit me while I was prepping for this sermon. But self-justification is a slippery slope. It doesn't matter what I do, I can always find ways to justify my actions in my own mind, rather than just lay it at the feet of Jesus and repent. So hypocrisy operates on the principle that I can cover up what's worst about me. Put on a good exterior to fool others, so I can get by without nobody knowing what I'm really like. Self-justification is that permeating effect of hypocrisy. Of hypocrisy, We think we can handle the sin in our lives and hide it, minimize it so that others don't see it. Looking good on the outside. But people, that is self-justification. That goes against everything that the Bible teaches. It undermines salvation by grace alone. It gives the wrong prescription. We can't cover it up. Only Jesus can deal with it. it so it inoculates us to the very gospel of grace this is why Jesus was so concerned to address His disciples about this. This is another religion. And He's saying, don't follow the religion of the Pharisees. It's not the religion that I'm teaching. It's an entirely different way of attempting to relate to one another and to God. It's idolatry at its very core. And that's the third point I want to make in hypocrisy. Why does the hypocrisy infect idolatry? Because it's something that we desire more than we desire God. So Jesus addresses his disciples first on this matter because he knows what's in store for their future. And it was so vitally important that they be shepherds of their flock, that they address the sins of themselves truly and genuinely so that they can also address their flock as they lead them, that they would get to the root of the issues and not just merely the outward reputation, that they would address their hearts. So Jesus is saying, saying we better not think for one second that we can in the long run or even in the short run for that matter, conceal our true identity. So beware of hypocrisy because it is wicked, it is short-sighted, and it is prevalent. But let me just a little bit more on this topic. Everything we ever said and have done will be exposed on the day of judgment. Yes, even Christians who have passed from judgment into light, and there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ because our defense attorney is Jesus. But, however, even though our redemption is, is not based on our good works and contribute nothing to our salvation. Every one of us will be evaluated on that day according to our works. And for the first time, we will see ourselves as we truly are. In light of this, I want to reflect on what R.C. Sproul says of this matter. Of the things about God's grace in the process of our sanctification is that He does not reveal all of our sin to us all at once. If God would reveal to me at this very moment all of my failures, sin, and corruption, I wouldn't be able to stand it, and neither would you. But so gracious is our God that He slowly convicts us of our sin by the influence of the Holy Spirit as He conforms us to be more like Him. So you see how God knows us much more than we know ourselves? David says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, know me, cleanse me of my hidden faults. David saying, I don't even know the extent of my own corruption and disobedience. Show it to me so that I can flee from it. You feel the weight of this? I want you to understand this because once you get this, once you believe this, it will change your perception on how you view yourself before a holy God. We don't realize how messed up we truly are. Even when we think we're doing something good, it's still filthy. It's still tainted because our motives are corrupt. We have a bias Towards our sin nature, down deep inside of us, and the only cure for that is Jesus Christ, because the only goodness and righteousness in us is imputed to us through Him. So, therefore, the believer should delight that God knows us altogether, and the believer should delight that since God knows us altogether, He has redeemed us altogether. Now that we examined what Jesus taught in regards to hypocrisy, let us now look into what Jesus says about fear. What, how, and why we fear. Let's look back in verses four and five. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now there is a logical connection moving from this topic of hypocrisy to this topic of fear that every would have endured. I mean, would have understood because of the persecution that they had to endure, and so. What, a primary, what is the primary source of hypocrisy? It's the fear of man. And I would be lying to say that I've, I'm not afraid. I don't have a little bit of sense of fear inside of me right now standing before you. But if you fear man Then, what you, then, then God, then your religion will be a little hypocritical because you're too, you're too worried and concerned about what others think of you rather than what God thinks of you. There's a fear in the Bible that teaches believers the right kind of living. And that fear combines an awareness of how great and holy God is with an acknowledgment of how pathetically weak and prone to sin we are. We fear men so much because we fear God so little. Psalm 33, eight says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Now, secondly, how we should fear? We should fear by an awe and reverence toward God. It's incredible to see the lack of of fear of God in our culture today. We have lost the awe of God in our churches. All has been replaced by good feelings toward God, a happy face image of God. But what we need is the awe-inspiring, wholesome fear of God, like Moses and Isaiah, or Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. Proverbs 1.7 says, Fear of God is the key to life. Jesus says, Don't worry about what man can do, because they can only kill the body. Rather, fear Him who can kill the body, and after death can send you into hell forever. Now let's look what Jesus says in verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the heads of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Within this lesson about fear, he gives us some encouragement. He wants to reassure to us the fact that our Heavenly Father cares for us. Which brings me to my third point. Why we have no reason to fear. He mentions sparrows, the most insignificant and cheapest creatures on the market. In Matthew's account in chapter 10 and verse 29, he says two sparrows are sold for one penny. And in Luke's account, he says five sparrows are sold for two pennies. Now for the sake of debate, there is no contradiction here. The emphasis is that you can buy two pairs of sparrows and get the fifth one free. That's, <laughs> that's how of little value these creatures are. <laughs> and so his, his care and, and not one of these sparrows falls to the ground without God knowing it. His care for us extends to the small details of life, even to the very number of hairs on your head, the number of hairs we had on our head when we were born, the number of hairs we have now, and the number of hairs on our head when we die, when we die. So fear not," he said. I want you to think of your comparative value here. We are made in the image of God. We are the apex of His created order. We have an eternal soul, and we are the objects of His redemption. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Fear God, but in that fear of God, don't think you're reduced to insignificance, because He places a value on us that is incalculable, because He has redeemed us through His Son. So there is an hypocrisy that He warns us against. There's a fear that we can be encouraged by, and there's a confession that we must all make. And again, I want to beg the questions, what, how, and why we confess as we engage on this last topic. What does the testimony of your lips say by way of your heart? Do you confess Jesus Christ as Lord with your mouth? Look with me on verses 8 and 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. This is not a politically correct view of Jesus. There are so many people who want to teach Jesus as a great moral prophet, to teaching that we should take care of the poor and the oppressed, which we should. But there's no claim of His divinity. There's no claim of His lordship. There's no claim that He's the only way to salvation. Why? Because that would be intolerant, that would be arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation. But the Bible is teaching us right here that Jesus is saying that He is the very hinge point of salvation. The only way of salvation. And your acceptance and rejection of Him will be the determining factor in your acceptance and rejection of Him in the end. So this is a very powerful and unique statement about the uniqueness of Christ. He is the only way of salvation. So what we confess is Jesus Now, verse 10, Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is, of course, a very tough passage in regard to the unpardonable sin that a lot of people struggle with, and I want to try and address it the best that I can. But there's no way I can even begin to answer all the questions that come out of this in our brief time this morning. But to begin, we get some background from this statement in Matthew 12, Mark 3, and in Luke chapter 11, verse 15, which provides some of the context of this statement, which takes place after Jesus performs a miracle, and the Pharisees and the scribes attribute it to Beelzebub, the prince of demons. In other words, they took a mighty work of God by the Holy Spirit and turned around and said Satan did it. So instead of saying Jesus is the Savior that he claims to be, The person is saying Jesus is a demon. Instead of recognizing that the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, they say He comes straight from hell and has every kind of hatred towards Him. The heart of fallen man is so depraved, the mind is so darkened by sin, that unless God the Holy Spirit opens our minds to the true understanding of Jesus Christ, we will never understand who He is. That's why the link here between the Holy Spirit and blasphemy is so crucial. Let's put it this way, if God the Holy Spirit reveals to you that Jesus is the Christ and you put Him in league with the devil, you have not just sinned against Jesus, but you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, who is the one who testifies to the identity of Christ. So let's be clear, first and foremost, it's not saying to sin against one of the Trinity is less forgiving, because they are equally God and it is equally offensive. Also, I must point out that the ones who are most concerned about committing the unforgivable sin are probably the ones who should have no concern about it at all. So in other words, the individual themselves isn't going around and saying, Well, I hope I haven't done that. I hope I haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Rather, they could care less whether they did it or not. Now, someone else might ask, are Christians capable of committing the unforgivable sin? And let me first say, Christians are capable of committing any sin that you can think of Because our sanctification is not complete yet and won't be complete until we're with Him in glory. So we struggle with sin in our lives. But I do not believe any Christian ever has or ever will commit the unforgivable sin. Not because we aren't capable of it in and of ourselves. God the Father preserves those who He has given His Son and promises that He will never snatch them away because our perseverance is based upon His preservation of us. Now with that said, it's important for us to examine our hearts, to know that it's not just a matter of lip service to Jesus, but but that the confession we make is authentic and lived out and expressed in the way we live our lives. As you've heard it before, a profession of faith is not a possession of faith. So how do we confess? We confess by the Holy Spirit. It's also interesting to note that there is a Trinitarian element in this block of Scripture that I want us to see. In verse 6, we have the Father's care. In verse 8, we see the Son as our advocate. And in verse 12, we see the instruction of the Holy Spirit. And I've read this block of Scripture numerous times before, but it wasn't until I was prepping for this sermon that this hidden treasure was even brought to my attention. I like what Piper says. He says there are 10,000 glories in the Bible that you have not seen and I have not seen. So give yourself to long staring at the Bible, carefully putting the pieces together and you will see more because how awesome and rich are the depths of His Word. Now, finally in verses 11 and 12, Jesus says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself. Or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. What Jesus is saying here is don't do your homework. What he is not saying here is don't do your homework. There's this is no excuse for a lack of preparation. It does not work like that. The preacher who doesn't prep beforehand and just gets up behind the pulpit and expects the Holy Spirit to give him words to say is ludicrous. This is more along the lines of what happened to Peter. Being filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4 and verse 8. For the rulers of the people and the elders. Or Paul before Felix and Agrippa in Acts chapters 24 and through 26. Or maybe even in regard to your friend who is suffering or going through a difficult time. Just be there for them. Words are not always that significant, but your presence says everything. We don't always remember what was said during the hard times, but we do know who was there. We do remember who was present. And so know this. The Holy Spirit is always with those who believe. So let us think about the relationship between our hearts and lips. May they be in holy agreement. But let's go just a little bit further. Can you imagine the look on the disciples' faces after hearing these hard sayings of Jesus? He says, Don't kid yourself into wearing a religious and hypocritical mask. It will slip and you will be revealed. And have no fear. Don't allow men to intimidate you because the value I have for you is unmeasurable. And confess me, stand up for me, and I'll stand up for you before my Father in heaven. But don't kid yourself into thinking you could play around with sin. But surely there was one who was there, staring straight ahead and wrestling with the lie that was in his soul, namely Judas. For he is a reminder to us of how close we might be to Christ and how skillful we may appear in the church and in our community but yet how far from Him our hearts may be. It's almost inconceivable to think that somebody hearing the love of the Father, the warnings of hypocrisy and blasphemy, would hand Christ over for 30 pieces of silver. But it does not have to be that dramatic. Some of us are unprepared to acknowledge Christ before our friends at work, before our own family, or friends at school. And what a tragedy that is to give it away with excuses like I witness with my life and my actions or that the relationship I have with Christ is personal. Where does that come from? How do you even sleep? Of course, our life and actions should be a testimony. But if we are never mentioning Jesus in casual conversation, then I want to challenge you to begin to pray and ask God for opportunities to proclaim his name and confess his name for others. But even before that, I want us to be ready always to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. So why do we confess? We confess because of God, and He is worthy. So let us pray. Our Father in Heaven, Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word and Your truth and the depths and riches inside of it. May it pierce us, sharpen us, enlighten us, that we may profess and proclaim Your name to others. Thank You for the truth that You have revealed to us in Your Word. Help us to live and grow by it every day. Help us to love you and know you more. We thank you and praise you for all that you do for us and the salvation we have for the price you paid for us on the cross. We thank you. In your name we pray, amen.